What's up, everybody? Hello, hello. Wherever you are listening from, I hope you're having a wonderful day, whether it's the afternoon or the evening or the morning.、Uh, you are listening to Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger. And if you haven't listened to Space Talk before, the dedication of this podcast is to, well, talk everything space. It's pretty straightforward. That's why I named it Space Talk.、Um, I myself am an astronomer returning back to school, returning back to my research after、um, about a 10 year career as an international fashion model. Realize I don't tend to give an introduction of myself on each episode, but might be a little bit helpful for us to have a little bit of perspective. My personal research was in something known as a protoplanetary disk, which I like to say are baby solar systems, basically about three to four stages before a solar system actually forms. And my goal was to try to find the probability in which these、uh, protoplanetary disks can form for planets to form, and maybe even one day life can exist on these planets. Um, I've always believed that there is life beyond Earth、uh, somewhere out in our universe. It's probably a lot closer to us than we might think, maybe within our own Milky Way, maybe even closer, and it's maybe on one of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn in our own solar system.、Uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about that, I have mentioned that in the past couple of episodes where we talked all about Enceladus.、Uh, we should Probably commit an entire episode to actually talk about some of the moons around Jupiter and Saturn because they're quite interesting. Where they have water, they have liquid water, and they have other signs of、uh, some type of activity on the planet that could imply potential life. So that's not what today's episode is about, though. Today's episode, as you probably already saw the title, is a, one of our historical figures episodes. This is a recurring series that we do every week. The last couple of episodes, we spoke about Charles Messier, a French astronomer who、uh, is famous for his catalog known as the Messier Catalog, and Johannes Kepler, who completely gave us a new perspective and understanding of the、um, orbits of celestial bodies in space, the fact that they're in ellipses, and what that means for、uh, us here on Earth, and what it means for finding other planets as well. And understanding other celestial bodies in space, as well as so much other stuff. But that's a little bit of a briefer on what we went over in the other two episodes. But today's episode, I'd like to highlight a very iconic and important woman, you know, with the name of Annie Jump Cannon. You might have heard about her if you've ever taken an astronomy class before, and that's probably because you've learned about spectra or spectral classifications. If you've heard any of these terms before. We have Annie Jump Cannon to thank for that. I'm going to give a quick overview of、uh, what she brought to the field of astronomy, and then we're going to get into her early years, including her education, and then her work,、um, and then looking at how that's changed the field of astronomy and how we use it today. So, starting with kind of just a briefer, she was an American astronomer and was one of the Harvard computers. Yeah, she was not. Called a computer because she was a hunk of machinery. She was one of the many women who ended up doing a ton of the math- mathematical calculations, sifting through lots of data. And you might have also heard this term if you've seen hidden figures, which were about the NASA computers. And if you've heard about the NASA computers, then you probably can understand a little bit about what the Harvard computers did. And so that was how she. 
have, ended up de- developing a lot of her technique that we still use today when it comes to understanding stars. She made a monumental impact on how to classify different stars that we see not just in the night sky, but far beyond what we can even see from here on Earth. You would have to use deep, deep telescopes that can see really far out in space, such as the Hubble Space Telescope and now the James Webb Space Telescope. If you want to learn a little bit about the James Webb Space Telescope, we did also do an episode here on Space Talk um, that actually talks all about uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which launched on Christmas. So um, if you didn't get to catch that launch, I recommend going and catching it. Launched out of French Guiana in South America. And um, it was launched on an Ariane 5 rocket. But anyway, we're not going to get into that today. We're going to be talking about Annie Jump Cannon. So to get into a little bit of her history, she, as I mentioned, was an American astronomer, born and raised in Delaware, in Dover, Delaware, born December 11th. So if anyone shares a birthday with her, shout out. That'd be really cool. In the year 1863. So a little bit of perspective here. Really keeping the years, the years in mind as we go throughout this journey today of, of history and historical facts, because there was a lot of things that uh, evolved in the field of astronomy in the early 1900s. So we're about to get into that. So she was actually born into a family of uh, two other sisters, and uh, her was she also was born into a family that was part of the government. So her father was um, not only a shipbuilder, but also a state senator. And then she took both her parents' last names, her mother, Mary Jump, and her father, Wilson Cannon. I think that's pretty cool, by the way. I like that she has both of their last names, and it sounds really great, Annie Jump Cannon. Um, you don't really see it too often, so just, just a little thing I noticed. And what's pretty cool is uh, Cannon's mom was actually the first one to teach her all about the constellations. And so if anyone out there shares uh, some type of relationship with one of your parents when it comes to astronomy, if they're the ones who introduced it to you, um, do really, really cherish that because that is so special and important. And it completely set the tone for her career and her life was being introduced to the field of astronomy at a very young age. Uh, So her mom not only taught her about the constellations, but also really pushed her and encouraged her to follow her her passion, her interests, her studies. She ended up becoming really, uh, uh, I would say, like, well-versed in mathematics. She ended up becoming one of the top of her class and eventually ended up going to a really well-known college. Uh, You might know the college's name by Wesley College. Um, it was actually not always called Wesley College. It used to also be called the, let me see, we grabbed the name here. I just had it a second ago. It was, oh, I'll get back to that because I know we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But modern day college is Wesley College. So if you ever end up going, you can say, hey, that's awesome. Annie Jim Cannon went to the same exact college. So on top of learning about the constellations and the stars, Um, that she was able to see from her own house. Her mom also taught her about household economics, uh, which later was a really important thing for her to learn, which she didn't really realize at the time, because it helped her organize her research. One of the things that Annie Jump Cannon is uh, really not not known for the most, but um, her colleagues spoke very highly about when it came to some of her working tactics, was her organization. 
she was a very um, well put together uh, astronomer. She always had everything really well organized and was a very patient person and also had a very high energy. Uh, a lot of people used um, really positive words to explain how she would work with each other, how she would work with her colleagues, and how she would even make negotiations for new equipment. But what's interesting, um, even if she had this very uh, outgoing and, and positive personality, she actually ended up being mostly deaf for her entire life. Uh, she was nearly deaf, and it's understood that it probably was caused by scarlet fever, which was actually quite common at the time. Um, as Henrietta Swan Levitt also uh, un unfortunately ended up having a very similar problem where she was nearly deaf the entire remaining of her life after having scarlet fever. So that was something that uh, resulted in kind of a little bit uh, difficult situation for her to socialize with people. It was a little bit tough for her to uh, make friends. And so as a result, she ended up really immersing herself in her work at a pretty young age. Uh, then by college as well. And then by 1894, her mom died and things became a little bit more difficult at home. She had two other sisters. Uh, she, you know, she did have her, her father there, but at the same time, she um, now as the oldest sister had to take on that responsibility. If I don't know if anyone's been there or if you've had a similar situation, but and that seems to be something that um, happen, it can happen to anyone. And um, the fact that it happens to someone who's so well known, I think can be a really good way to not only sort of relate to what they've gone through, but also look at all the incredible accomplishments she ended up making after that. And so because this happened, her mom ended up passing away. She ended up thinking, okay, I got to get a job. I need to start job hunting, look for something. So she wrote to her uh, previous pr professor at Wesley College. Um, here we go. I got the name now. <laughs> The Wilmington, Wilmington Conference Academy. This is why I couldn't remember it off the top of my head because it's so, uh, such a strange name for a college, um, at least in my mind, because uh, I'm not used to really calling colleges academies. But she ended up writing to one of her old professors and asking for a job opportunity. And she ended up getting the job. She was hired as a junior physics teacher at the college. And this ended up allowing her to now take graduate courses, both in physics and astronomy. And because of this teacher that she ended up getting a job from, uh, this teacher specifically worked in spectroscopy. And this is really important because, as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest contributions that any jump cannon made to modern day astronomy is the understanding of stellar spectra. Again, we're going to explain that a little bit further down the line, but this is one of those bigger, big turning points for her in her career where um, she now is starting to learn about spectroscopy. She eventually started uh, getting really good access to telescopes um, at Radcliffe College, where she actually enrolled as, this is what I, I was reading a little bit earlier, but as a special student. And keeping that in mind, um, whether it was from her deafness or also her advancement in her schooling and her records, her GPA, her grades were so good. She was really... Uh, had a special knack for mathematics and science. The, these are all things that really uh, tied together into her career. Eventually, she was then set up near Harvard College uh, for different um, 
lectures for her to attend, specifically uh, for women that were attending Radcliffe University. Um, this was a, a separate division that um, women had to attend during that time uh, through through Harvard College. And she it ended up being a great thing. At the time, it was like, okay, like you're having to do totally separate um, learning. You're having to do totally separate uh, lectures. But this ended up being a really positive thing um, because she ended up having a great relationship with a lot of her colleagues, with her professors. And this eventually led her to the Harvard College Observatory. And this was in year 18. 96, which is what really took a major turning point in her career, because this is where then she got set up with who was one of her main mentors, Edward Pickering, someone you probably read about quite a lot whenever uh, you learn about spectroscopy or you learn about um, sort of maybe the history of Andy Jump Cannon. He ended up uh, hiring her as an assistant for the Harvard College Observatory, and this is what started her career as a Harvard computer. So 1896, we're not even at 19, we're really close to 1900, not there yet. And for those of you who don't know, I explained it a little bit briefly before, um, but the Harvard computers were a group of women that were hired by the Harvard Observatory, by Edward Pickering, to complete the, something known as the Henry Draper Catalog. And Henry Draper uh, was actually an amateur astronomer, um, and he ended up uh, becoming one of the main pioneering uh, scientists who led into um, astro sorry, spectro spectrophotography, spectroscopy, a little bit different than spectroscopy. He started off um, doing a lot of research, more so in the imaging of um, stars, the imaging of uh, different um temperature, different variables that define uh, different aspects and differences of stars. But he started kind of exploring that, like, okay, what's going to, how, how can we create the tools to understand these differences when it comes to stars? And he had already died by this point. And so now there was this mission to try and create or complete the Henry Draper catalog. And the goal was to map and define every star in the sky to a photographic magnitude of about nine. Uh, and that, that, that just means as far as like its um, complete visibility goes, so like what you, not only you can see in the night sky, but also to um, just how um, much detail you can capture within this uh, photographic imaging. So it's not just the imaging, it's also the, the data that comes and collects from it, the spectra that comes from it, the temperature, surface temperature of the star, um, and then all the elements that make it up. So by 1907, uh, she ended up, Cannon ended up finishing her studies and received her master's degree from Wesley College, which now brings us into her work. So she's now, some of her biggest work ended up being as a college, um, sorry, as a Harvard computer. And this is what started to really change the game now for how, um, the understanding of stars really started to become. She, so she started to really explore now this whole other realm of what makes stars different, how can we classify it, and what's the most efficient way to classify it. I'm going to do a real quick music break, and then we are going to jump into her work.
righty, let's jump back into it. I'm going to start off with a quote from her mentor, Edward Pickering, who said that she was able to classify stars quickly. In fact, his quote was, Miss Cannon is the only person in the world, man or woman, who can do this work so quickly. So we're going to explore a little bit how she did that um, and what her technique was. So she ended up creating um, something known as the Harvard Classification Scheme, which was basically the first serious attempt to organize and classify stars based on their temperatures and their spectral types. This later led to the development of something known as the HR diagram. I'm skipping up a little bit here in my notes because um, I just feel like those two tie together really well. A lot of you who maybe have taken an astronomy class before, you might have heard about the HR diagram before. And the HR diagram, if you were to just look it up real quick, it's a scatter plot diagram placing stars in different regions based on their temperature, their surface temperature, and their peak luminosity. And then some HR diagrams also have the spectral class with the letters O, B, A, F, G, K, M. And those, now this diagram was actually created by two totally separate astronomers, two totally separate countries who knew nothing about each other at the time. In the same year, which is really crazy, in 1911, one was Ednar Hertzsprung, the other was Henry Norris Russell. Um, oh, yeah, no, sorry, not the same year. Ednar was 1911, Russell was 1913. So two-year difference. And they ended up creating this, this diagram, mapping and showing stellar evolution, how stars go from one phase to another to another. Because when you look at this diagram, you might think, oh, those are totally different stars. A red dwarf is a red dwarf and a, you know, a main sequence star is a main sequence star. But it's not always the case. A star doesn't always stay at its current state. So like a red giant star wasn't always a red giant star. It was a main sequence star at one point. And it started to reach the end of its life. And when it dies, it changes its phase, its star phase into a totally different classification. Um, And this happens. Same thing with stellar black holes. Uh, Those also can happen. Same thing with white dwarf stars. That would be the the collapsed core of uh, the center of a star when it goes supernova. But we'll get into that in the future. We can maybe do a full episode on the HR diagram. Getting back to Annie Jump Cannon. Um, The reason I mention that is, again, because it's really important. Her research is what led to this bigger understanding of um, how stars evolve and and the different kinds of stars. One of her colleagues was by the name Mary Ann Draper, who was the wife of Henry Draper, as I mentioned earlier. And um, once Henry Draper died... Uh, she was, well, you know, of course, the widow, uh, but she continued his work. She continued his work um, as an amateur astronomer, and she ended up setting up a fund uh, to support the work that's being done um, towards what her husband was doing. Now, this is uh, something quite interesting as far as the sort of roles that men and women had when it came to this research. The men at the laboratory predominantly did the labor of operating the telescopes and taking photographs, whereas the women during this time were actually the the data analysts. They were the ones examining the data, um, 
looking through the astronomical calculations, carrying out the astronomical calculations, and then cataloging those photographs um, all during the day. And so it was like really kind of interesting. And this is why now that you can understand the Harvard computers were a group, were a group of women. They were actually more of the data analysts. Um, And this is, uh, this was like a really kind of interesting, uh, I would say, yeah, just, just sort of synergy that, that happened during this time period. And, um, I think now that's definitely not, not really the case so much anymore. I think if you're an astronomer, you're, you're collecting, you're working at the telescope yourself, you're operating it, you're collecting your own data, and then you're analyzing your own data, um, unless you maybe have an assistant to do that. But, um, pretty cool. What ended up happening was um, this long-term project that Pickering made to try and create this catalog um, ended up obtaining optical spectra with as many stars as possible. He wanted to really catalog as many as possible and um, start to classify them based on, well, their, their spectra. But then not long after everyone started working on the Draper catalog, there started to be quite a lot of discrepancies. There started to be a lot of disagreement as far as how exactly to classify these stars. Um, this ended up leaving a lot of the ideas um, and the complex like classific- classification systems to a couple different people. Uh, so one of them being Henry Draper's niece, Antonia Mori, and then Wilhelmina Fleming, um, who ended up overseeing the project for Pickering. And they just wanted something a little bit more simple, a little more straightforward. Um, and then this is when Cannon ended up negotiating uh, a compromise. She ended up analyzing the bright southern hemisphere stars. And then she applied a third system, which is a division of stars into their spectral classes, which I mentioned earlier, the OBAFGKM. And this was actually based on something known as the Balmer absorption lines, also known as the Balmer series. Uh, it is within atomic physics. It's a set of six named series uh, describing the spectral light emissions of the hydrogen atom. And since stars are predominantly made up of hydrogen, being the first element that they fuse in their core, this is a pretty efficient system. This was something that was uh, pretty helpful at the time. And so she based it on on the Balmer series. And um, they ended up adopting this for, for quite a while. Again, it wasn't until the HR diagram came along and it started to sort of shift a little bit into um, more so looking at the peak luminosity of the star and looking at the temperature. Now, what's really important about why she used the absorption lines is because they were understood um, in terms of stellar temperatures. Uh, in fact, her initial classification system was rearranged a little bit to avoid having to update star catalogs. So more so looking at those absorption lines that would then explain what that temperature was of that star. She ended up publishing her first catalog of stellar spectra in 1901. So now we're finally at the 1900s. She publishes her first catalog and about uh, 10 years later, 1911, she was then made the curator of the astronomical photographs at Harvard. And in 1914, she was admitted as an honorary member of the Royal Astronomical Society. By 1921, she became one of the first women to receive an honorary doctorate from a European university when she was awarded an honorary 
doctor's degree in math and astronomy from Grokneejin University. I know I totally didn't say that name completely right, but that's okay. <laughs> Grokneejin University. What ended up being a really uh, exciting moment during this time is she wasn't the only Harvard computer that came out of this exact same office, the exact same time period, and the exact same research to have made a big impact. In fact, I was debating today on today's episode between talking about Henrietta Swan Leavitt um, or uh, Annie Jump Cannon, and I went with Annie Jump Cannon first because I felt like uh, a lot of her research is a pretty good. Um, initial way to start uh, talking about the Harvard computers. But other women like Henrietta Swan-Levitt, Antonia Mori, and Florence Crushman um, ended up being uh, not only really uh, showing like really important uh, information in, in their own research, and we'll get to that in the future. But during this time period, it, it wasn't so glorified. Um, in fact, they, at first they were criticized for being kind of like out of their place, um, for not being housewives. It wasn't really common for women to rise above the level of being an assistant during that time, making 25 cents an hour to work seven hours a day, about six days a week. And so it was a little bit controversial um, at the time, but you know they ended up moving forward, which is awesome and great. And... Um, you know, again, Henrietta Swan Levitt also ended up being uh, nearly deaf, just as any jump cannon was, also probably from scarlet fever. So you just have all these factors coming in, and it just really can maybe give you a perspective for a moment of like, you know, you have these women during a time where no one was really wanting to see um, really a, like a, any kind of woman move forward during this time period. Not anyone, but maybe a lot of their colleagues just because of stuff that they've shared, stuff that they've written down, um, documentation showing that, but also to the fact that they were like nearly deaf, um, just had lost so much of their hearing and still ended up uh, providing so much incredible stuff to the field of astronomy. I, I think just giving them a huge applaud for not just their work, but to remind yourself of that um, as well. Whenever you might feel like you're in a tough situation, say like, hey, it's okay because like human perseverance is greater than any of these other circumstances right now. And we have to just, you know, keep keep pushing forward. Um, we can do that. I think anyone can, can really start to think that way. So um, – as I mentioned earlier, one of the big reasons for why uh, she ended up pushing through so much of her work and really doing well was that she had a really positive attitude, super outgoing, really positive person. Um, she she ended up never getting married or having children. She chose not to do that. Um, and she also had this really good knack at tidiness, being very tidy, being very organized and being patient. And even through all the tedious work, and a lot of people at the time didn't really have the patience to, you know, do the type of work that her and other Harvard computers were doing. Because I don't know if any of you guys have ever done anything with data analyst stuff, but it is so, so tedious. Um, I lost patience a few times with it, but it's, you know, when, when it's important work, you'll, you'll, you'll keep pushing forward. And it sounds like that's what she did, which was really, really exciting. Um, let's see by, um, I'm looking at the chart right now. I actually had, had put the entire chart in front of me of the stellar classification, which is also what's known as the Harvard classification scheme. You literally can just call it the, the stellar classification. It looks at, I'll read this all to you. <clears throat> it has the class, 
which are the letters I read earlier, O-B-A-F-G-K-M, the temperature of each of those stars. So it ranges from uh, greater than or equal to 30,000 degrees Kelvin uh, as an O star, so some of the hottest stars, and then going all the way down to an M-type star, which is pretty cool. It's about 2,400 to 3,700 Kelvin. So you have this really wide range of temperatures that are fluctuating. M stars um, are pretty cool. I, I did my second year of research was actually on low mass stars, red dwarfs, um, brown dwarfs as well uh, at M stars. And um, we spoke about them in a couple episodes ago because those types of stars can have a um, smaller uh, Goldilocks zone or a closer orbit of their Goldilocks zone. And that's because the stars are a lot cooler. So they're cooler. They're not emitting as much heat or radiation. And so the planets can be located safer uh, at a closer distance and be safe. Um, then this chart also looks at the, uh, you know, the basic kind of colors of what these stars would be. O stars are typically blue. B stars are blue-white. A stars are white. F are yellow-white. G, like our, our sun, are yellow. Um, K are, uh, light orange and then M stars are kind of an orangish red color. And then it looks at main sequence. It talks about its mass. So about compared to solar masses, how big these stars are. O stars just, they're so huge. <laughs> they're, they're, they're about greater than or equal to 16 solar masses. So taking 16 of our suns and combining them all together about O stars and then it goes all the way down to about 0 0.08 to about 0 0.45 solar masses is an M star. So really small, really cold. Um, and then also their radius, that it looks at their luminosity compared to the sun, their hydrogen lines, and then also their fraction of all main sequence stars. So just about how many of them exist. So... This is a really cool diagram. I recommend you checking that out. I do also recommend you checking out the HR diagram, um, looking at the stellar evolution of stars, which is just really valuable if you ever want to get into astrophysics um, or if you ever want to just learn about stars. Uh, really, really valuable, really important diagram. Um, you'll want to know it in and out. It's just super helpful. So looking kind of at the end of Annie Jump Cannon's life, um, overall, she ended up classifying more than uh, more, more stars in her lifetime than anyone else, uh, with a total of about 350,000 stars. Uh, it's a lot of stars. I, I don't know if I've ever even classified, like, I don't know if I've ever, yeah, actually, I can't, I can't think of a statement. I don't know if I've ever written that many words, but I definitely have. But um, actually, have I? I don't know. Uh, leave that leave that up to the audience to think about. She discovered 300 variable stars. Uh, we can get into variable stars in the future, but they're the ones who uh, tend to fluctuate in brightness. Five novas and one spectroscopic binary. So binary star, two stars that are orbiting around each other. And then she ended up uh, creating a bibliography that included about 200,000 references. Uh, and then she discovered her first star in 1898. That was the year we mentioned earlier. That was a really big turning point for her. Um, but then she wasn't able to confirm it until 1905. So uh, Annie Jump Cannon not only just 
classified so many stars more than anyone else. And how she was able to do that in her lifetime was because of, as I mentioned, the patience, the perseverance, the not thinking about everyone turning her down, the fact that she was deaf and not letting her hold that back, and then moving forward and and finding a really like you know awesome method to how to do this really quickly. Um, she ended up. Kanika classify, this is a really cool statistic, three stars a minute just by looking at their spectral patterns. And if using magnifying glass, she could classify stars to the ninth magnitude around 16 times fainter than what the human eye can see. So, and her work was also highly accurate. Um, so again, just <laughs> incredibly talented at classifying stars. Uh, if only there was like more people around. I kind of wish she had kids because <laughs> then maybe she could have taught them her ways. Um, and, and they would have also probably maybe uh, adapted a little bit of her personality traits or patience. And um, they would have it would have been the same way. And then eventually, by May 9th, 1922, the International Astronomical Union, which we've talked about before here on Space Talk, ended up passing the resolution to formally adopt Canon's stellar classification system. With only a few minor changes, it's still being used today. As I mentioned before, you can use it in any astronomy class, um, or you can use it when you're doing your own research one day, which would be really cool. Um, there's like just a few, few more really cool fun facts here. She ended up um, photographing a bunch of stars in the Southern Hemisphere, cataloging those while she was in Peru, uh, in Arequipa. And that was in 1922. By 1925, she became the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate from Oxford University, Doctorate of Science. And in 1935, she created the Annie Jump Cannon Prize for the woman of any country whose contributions to the science of astronomy are the most distinguished. And what better person to actually do that and make that award than um, Annie herself because of all the uh, milestones that she ended up breaking through. And then eventually um, the astronomer Cecilia Payne, another, um, I believe she also was a Harvard computer, but uh, another incredible woman in the field of astronomy who I wanted to talk about today, but I decided to go Annie Joe Cannon's story. Uh, she collaborated with Cannon and used Cannon's data to show that the stars were composed mainly of hydrogen and helium, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, that they a lot of astronomers understood that there was a lot of hydrogen that was prominent in the stars, but it wasn't confirmed um, until Cecilia Payne came along and said hydrogen and helium, two most prominent elements within stars, and then eventually, depending on uh, the size of them, how much, how long they live. Their um, cores can keep fusing uh, more elements to create new elements until up to about uh, no heavier than iron. And then just a little short brief uh, thing, which is of her history, um, which is kind of really cool. So she ended up retiring in 1940. She continued working in astronomy for about 40 years. But even when she retired, uh, she still was actively working at the observatory up until a few weeks before she died. And uh, during her career, she helped women gain acceptance, respect within the scientific community. And then um, also just that, that hardworking and calm attitude and demeanor ended up helping her gain respect uh, throughout her entire lifetime and really paved uh, the, the way for future female astronomers, which, um, again, really, really important. So. Annie Jump Cannon, there you are. You have it. Um, 
let's all just give like a, a total like cheers to her later if you're going to have a nice glass of wine or a beer um just maybe think about um her for a moment and um and her contributions to astronomy but also more importantly uh to sort of breaking the status quo uh, not just for women astronomers but also to just for how um how things can be done a little bit different when it comes to research in the field of astronomy um one more thing she she ended up dying in 1941 in Massachusetts um, at age 77. Uh, she was ill for about a month in the hospital and eventually did just uh, you know, pass away while she was in the hospital. But that's about everything. Um, all of her work, uh, really monumental, really important for um, everything that we now do today. And if you guys take an astronomy class and this is your first time learning about Annie Jim Cannon, you can just refer back to this episode and probably end up being able to do an entire paper or project on her. Um, it was a lot of information, but I just really wanted to share all that because she was a very incredible, incredible scientist. Um, but that's about everything. I have a couple announcements coming up. We have a few new episodes. First off is um, my first guest here on Space Talk. Um, so uh, it's actually someone I do not know personally. I was expecting to have one of my friends on first, um, but uh, he reached out and um, has been really excited to come on Space Talk. He, he's known as Dr. Intergalactic or also just Dr. Jose Mori. He is the CEO of Ad Astra Media. He is um, advocating right now to try and uh, get more uh, kids in STEM, more diversity, uh, more, more Latino kids in STEM. He actually has a, a background um, in astrophysics, in STEAM, in uh, tons of also DIY science experience that he has online and uh, just does so many cool things right now. I can't wait to learn a little bit more about him uh, before, of course, our interview. And then I will put together a bunch of questions. So that way we can um, really have a, f a fun chat. So that's going to be on the 20th at 3 p.m. Central Time if you want to join that call. And if you're interested to uh, be a guest here on Space Talk, shoot me a message. Um, there is a DM function here on the Colin app. And I would love to hear from you, either your story or if you want to talk about something specific, um, maybe a specific topic of interest. It also doesn't have to be for the whole podcast if you want to come on just for a few minutes. Uh, that's why we have the Colin feature here on Colin. Um, but again, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode of Space Talk. Um, my next episode I will be announcing very soon. We're going to do something a little bit special before we talk about what you have to look forward to in the night sky for next week. Um, but until then, I hope you get to go outside and look up and stargaze. Until next time, add Astra. Astra.